this is Ron Powell, and you're listening to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. This program presents conversations with thought leaders who are shaping our future through new ideas and new technologies. In this edition of Fast Forward, Peter Evans, Senior Director for Big Data Solutions at Solix, talks with our hosts, Bill Bowermaster and Stephen Gordon, about the challenges and opportunities that organizations face as they move to data-driven business and operational models. What lies behind all the current hype about digital transformation? And what are the process and infrastructure changes that an organization must be willing to address in order to become a true data-driven enterprise? Let's explore the future begins right now. Live to see it, friends, and welcome to the World Transformed. This program is your guide to an astounding future that lies ahead, a future that will be here sooner than you think. I'm Phil Bowermaster, and I'm pleased to introduce our very special guest for today's program, Peter Evans. Peter is the Senior Director for Big Data Solutions at Solix, specializing in big data, data virtualization, business intelligence, and advanced analytics. He is a recognized expert in the design, implementation, and delivery of bespoke business intelligence and analytics systems. Leveraging a broad variety of technologies, he has more than 16 years experience delivering such systems to some of the world's leading companies. Peter is a member of the British Computer Society and Institute of Analysts and Programmers, and he holds certifications from Microsoft, Novell, and Target. He regularly contributes to the database journal and online forums and social media discussions in the areas of analytics and business intelligence and data virtualization. Peter Evans, welcome to Fast Forward on the World Transformed. Thank you so much for having me, guys. It's uh, welcome to be here and uh, looking forward to the conversation. We are looking forward to it as well and excited to have you here. We also have with us in the virtual studio, as usual, my co-author, co-futurist, and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Stephen, why don't you get things started for us today? Thanks, Bill. Peter, welcome to the show. Why don't we start with the most fundamental question. What can you tell us about the data-driven enterprise? What does that mean? Well, it's an interesting term, isn't it, guys? I mean, it's really designed around how the world is changing. If you look at the meteoritic rise of companies like Uber, Airbnb, Deliveroo, these these all rattled the world of business. Some of the biggest players in transport, lettings, and delivery industries suddenly weren't actually in transport, letting, and delivery. They were all technology companies. They were all designed around technology. And this has really had an impact. Governments and sectors that were traditionally based, have been left on the back foot while these new businesses were left with profits. It's quite often easy to hear in technical conversations these days some things like, it's like Uber, but for. So perhaps the future of business is actually the future of technology. And does that mean that it's really time to start planning your application? So what does this really mean? Well, the growth growth of the shared economy across multiple sectors, which is really highlighting the rapid global and community trend, has forced entrepreneurs to utilize this sharing economy model to start new business opportunities. This has led to different ways in which values are created and exchanged in the sharing economy. 
And if you look at recent trends, especially with large enterprises, one out of three companies will have failed within three years. And that's sort of driven of effect if you look at things like um, Blockbuster, who used to be a leader in its field, went out of business by suffering the death of a thousand cuts through streaming providers because the sharing economy and the way it's transformed digital traditional business was really directly responsible for that. So in this economic period of change where companies and leaders must look not, really not look to where their companies need to be tomorrow, but as I like to see where the puck's going to be two seconds from now. So where mm. is that company going to be two years from now to survive? So to really, to sort of thrive and to be able to survive, you need to instill in your teams and organizations a paranoia. And that paranoia will really help your managers, team members to thrive. You must constantly question, are we the best? Especially when you think you are. And avoid building company cultures which thrive on minimizing change. The old adages of, if it's not broken, don't fix it, and don't change a winning team should really be replaced with, if it's not broken, look to fix it and always change your winning team. That really drives digital transformation. So part of the problem with implementations of this is fear. And I always try to equate this to um, outside life. But if you look at Western beliefs, they really point to not trusting computers because it's an inanimate object. The guy down the street in America doesn't really trust the computer. He doesn't think there's anything inside it. So therefore, it how can it be a help in a business process? But if you look at how Eastern cultures react to uh, technology, especially places like Japan and Korea, they're really at the forefront of building the most technological advances because they believe in the ability of an inanimate object of having a soul. So there's, this, there's less cultural prejudice which is involved in accepting those ideas of a computer being alive and therefore accepting their integration in social and business life and therefore accepting things like machine learning and AI. So what does that all mean? Well, really, these days, you can't have a conversation with anybody in technology without talking about digital transformation, to your point, Steve. It's yeah. how do you understand that? But what does it actually mean? And why does it matter? I mean, today, digital transformation refers to how companies are reinventing themselves for the digital world. Businesses have always had to disrupt themselves, but now, in order to revolutionize their industries, they must infuse their business with technology, essentially becoming technology companies themselves. What this means is that things like IoT, after a few years of playing around the edges of our lives, it's basically becoming a reality. Connected, intelligent objects are all around. You only have to look in a traditional house. We've got talking to Alexa, talking to Google, talking to the thermometer, talking to the TV. Um, I, I just am amazed by the amount of adverts that are there for talking to things these days. And then you look at the other types of things on our wrists, in our cars, and in our factories. So to, today, with the best of breed cloud technology, companies are building the next generation of supply chains to really be more seamless, to connect thousands of suppliers globally, to move everything easier. And really what that means is a move should be really emulated by others to improve the experience for suppliers and therefore ultimately increase productivity. Experian, 
have been through this change and their, C, their, um, their chairman basically uh, came out, Barry Liebson, and he recently shared that Experian to a large extent really is now a technology company. They're gone are the days when they used to be a responsibility was to keep the lights on and keep financial systems operating. They now help customers prevent fraud, offer on-the-spot credit to consumers, make data-driven marketing decisions. And that has all been basically designed and built by navigating its transformation, by morphing into a strategic partner to the business instead of being outside of the business as an, intel is, as an IT company. What that really means is that they're already deciding before they get to the point of delivery what type of product should be built based on that understanding. So the term data-rich, information-poor comes to mind when you think of these things. It refers to organizations that really have not established the critical components needed to transform their data into actionable insights. They're attempting to become data-driven but they're stymied by ambiguity surrounding the project and the lack of awareness of the people, the processes, and especially the technology considerations which are vital to the success of that initiative. So to become data-driven, what does an organization need to do? Well, it must provide decision makers with timely access to clean, consistent, reliable, and actionable information while at the same time avoiding the myriad challenges that lie in the way. Becoming a data-driven organization is not easy. It's really difficult, in fact. And while all organizations have a glut of data, especially in this modern age, their abilities to collect it, cleanse it, integrate it, manage it, and access it, along with securing it and actually applying governance and regulatory compliance, and then the ability to analyze it, vary significantly from company to company. Even though each of these factors helps ensure that data can be used with higher levels of confidence, it's still difficult for businesses to realize the value of its data. We hear the term monetization of data a lot. And basically, that's the whole crux of the matter. If a corporate culture lags behind its technology capabilities, then you have the difficulty that you can't understand how that data is valuable. So people have been querying databases for decades to get answers to known questions. The problem is, and the shortcoming of that approach, is that you're assuming that the question you're asking is the optimal question to ask. If you don't know the right question, then how can you have the right answer? So a data-driven business aims to continuously improve the quality of the questions that they ask. They also try to discover through machine learning or artificial intelligence what questions they should be asking that they've never even thought about asking. And of course, what wraps all of that together is the desire to explore data, and that is really what drives the high demand for interactive self-service capabilities on all of these platforms we see. And that really enables users to adjust their thinking and their approach in an iterative fashion to make sure that they get the right answers. You know, Peter, as I'm unpacking your answer to Stephen's question, getting this clearer and clearer picture in my mind of what a data-driven enterprise is, it's really interesting the, the pieces that you use to build that kind of conceptual case for it touch on so many things that we've been talking about on this program over the past couple of years. This idea that we just talked about a while back of panpsychism, this, this interesting 
notion that physicists and philosophers are getting a hold of in the West now, that perhaps there is some level of consciousness that attaches all the way down to the subatomic particles. So maybe they'll get a hold of that idea and become competitive with, with the East in terms, of, in terms of how we're able to conceptualize this. Or even when you're talking about IoT, we had futurist Thomas Fry on a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about the alexification of everything in your home. And he asked us if we had something to say to our toilet, what, what would we say? And all I could think of was maybe an apology, right, was probably the, <laughs> the, 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 the strongest answer I'd have to that. But, but when you look at all these threads coming together and providing the kind, of, the, the, the kind of environment that you're talking about, I think everything fits very well into a process that I've dubbed, for lack of a better term, datafication, this transition where, as you said, Every company becomes a technology company, and ultimately every enterprise is in the data business. So let's take that one level deeper and look at how this process of becoming data-driven, uh, becoming a data-driven enterprise plays out in different industries. Could you give us a couple of examples? Say, what does it look like for a financial services organization, or what will it look like for a healthcare provider? Yeah, certainly. I mean... It, it's quite interesting, Phil, the way you're describing that, because I think that, that matches very much with how I feel about this. Um, I, I studied karate a long, long time ago, and the mentality of the way that that is driven from a, a teacher from the East to a teacher from the West is exactly that. It's a different level of teaching. Right. Um, and I was lucky to have both sides of that. But it, for, for instance, if you go back and look at financial institutions, this is not something new. In 1994, there was a certain rather well-known person called Bill Gates who basically said that banking is necessary, but banks are not. Um, and at that point in time, that was a really controversial statement. Yet 23 years on, it holds true for every single BFSI industry and is gaining much relevance as we speak. If you look at advanced digital technologies, they have drastically changed the banking landscape just in a very short period of time, in fact, the last 20 years. And this new financial management, the, the entities around that are really disrupting the traditional banking system. So with that technology creating unprecedented business avenues, financial startups are really disrupting the sector at an exponential rate. Companies like Paytem, FreeCharge, CitrusPay, uh, MobiWiki have, have really reimagined payments with digital country currencies. We're seeing this last couple of months the huge explosion in Bitcoin value and then the drop in Bitcoin value. And today we have the HM and Customs in the UK and the, the finance revenue in the US declaring that Bitcoins would be taxable. And that's having a completely different view on the distance. This really is driving a different way of working with peer-to-peer -peer lending, peer-to-peer -peer transactions, blockchain driving the security of that data. And if you look at things like there was a PwC Global FinTech report where over 1,300 financial professionals were interviewed about what impact they thought technology was going to have. And 67% of them actually reported that they felt that disruptive financial technologies were putting their actual businesses and their jobs at risk in the domain of payments, money transfers, and personal finance. So banks are really on the front line of this business disruption. Uber and Airbnb are getting more press, but the fintechs and the new online banks are being just as disruptive. 
the new competitiveness that they see and that they're bringing to the organization of, of banking is really providing a digitalized or a digitized individual service and picking them these services off piecemeal and eroding the income of the, the large brick-and-mortar financial institutions. And even the largest financial institutions are feeling the heat and are now starting to offer their own automated services. I mean, think three or four years ago, things like being able to uh, take a picture of a check and have it deposited in your account would have been laughed at by major, major financial institutions. That is now commonplace for most banks across the world. What this basically means is that structural and technologi technological complexity and cost and compliance issues, along with internal politics, are basically moving banks, but they're still holding large banks back. They understand and they know they need to respond, but they are still too fragmented, and redesigning individual services is not really a solution. They really need to take everything and look at the whole picture. And again, the same as Blockbuster did earlier in my statement, they're starting to die the slow death of a thousand cuts. But they still have strong areas. Uh, despite of all of this upheaval, banks remain strong pillars of the financial world. But to remain relevant in this ever-changing environment, they have to work hard at harnessing digital transformation, delineating new ways to ensure exceptional customer experience, and at the heart of all this, digital transformation lies big data. So finally, the banks of tomorrow will be fundamentally different of the ones we see today. The task ahead for financial institutions is really to prioritize digital transformation and create data-centric systems. The sector, the sector really needs a robust infrastructure background, which applies a measured approach in managing critical real-time and mobile data, which is then backed by dedicated investments, proper coherent strategies, and professional talent. The banking of tomorrow will be about understanding patterns, predicting outcomes, and improving processes. And there's a good example of that if you look at uh, the Bank of Montreal. The Bank of Montreal was actually recognized by Cellnet as a winner of the Model Bank 2017 Award for Process Automation. And that was really designed for the most effective deployment of technology to automate business processes or decision making. Cellnet's annual Model Bank Awards have constantly recognized these best practices in technology. And that's quite interesting if you think about it's a model bank, but it's recognizing technology in a financial institution, and this is a brick-and-mortar bank that we're talking about. So this strategy was integral to how that initiative was pushed forward by BMO to meet the heightened expectations of customers, to accelerate a deployment of digital capabilities across the bank. There were a number of ways they did that, but their project objectives basically were to improve efficiency ratios by taking costs out of manual and duplicative systems, enterprise-driven reusability of common technology components, making efficiencies in operational processes which would increase productivity, uh, driving an increase in customer digital usage and adoption and loyalty, which basically drove greater shareholder value. So... To achieve this award, BMO managed a few important things in their achievements. For instance, a BMO customer can now open an account on their smartphone in under eight minutes.
They've eliminated all paper forms and saved 2.8 million sheets of paper every year. They have a reduction across digital adoptions, which basically has created 940 retail digital branches in Canada. And lastly, savings. That paper, it's saving BMO 132 million Canadian dollars a year. And they're still moving. So BMO is still in the process of expanding the deployment of its e-forms and signatures across other core businesses. And we still feel that there is a long way to go with BMO. You know, it's interesting. We think that we've passed the stage where we've heard all these big going digital stories for businesses, and yet it's still happening. It's happening all the time, and I think it still has yet to happen in a lot of industries and for a lot of companies, doesn't it? It does, and you're, you're very correct. I mean, if you look at the traditional industries and the traditional areas, we like to say in technology that, that healthcare is sometimes five years behind the, the, the curve. Uh, banking is, is certainly on that, or has been until recently, on that same sort of plane. Um, right. These organizations that are traditional, that are, that are founded in really structured operating systems, find it very difficult to move quickly to adopt change. And therefore, they have to wait till things are approved. So a bank has, has now been pushed over the edge, so to speak, by the fintech companies. And that's exactly the same in healthcare. The healthcare industry has experienced huge amounts of progress in data management and analysis, but it's more than a decade coming in large-scale digitization of medical records. You only have to go back to my home country of England. The NHS is still struggling with digitization of records. And it's this problem about having an accelerator to get you to that point. And healthcare is being now accelerated not so much by a disruptive nature of a business coming in, but more about the fact that data analysis is proving very, very valuable in understanding patients, understanding diseases, and understanding how you deal with those diseases for individual patients. So treatment policies, treatment regimes, being able to map the genome. There was a, a device that came out on the news last week where you've now got a handheld device that you can actually map the human genome in less than 15 minutes. And that's just huge wow. for when you're in Africa as a doctor. You can, you can understand immediately from there what treatments your patients need. And, and that's Amazing. just huge. Yeah. So uh, these shifts towards greater data liquidity, the ability of patient data to move throughout the healthcare system securely and useful, it's all driving a technology move, shall we say, to encompass a huge variety of tools, which range from wearable sensors and portable diagnostic equipment, as I've just talked about, to data-driven software platforms and telemedicine tools. And mobile healthcare applications come together with basically the potential to help worldwide healthcare systems achieve five important goals. So first off, helping patients to become more engaged in their own care. It's very difficult to get a patient to do things if they don't know why they're doing them. Closing the communication gap, speaking to people properly, identifying patients' needs and tailoring those services to meet them. And basically, this is all about cost reduction as well for the healthcare departments. If you can tailor a service, you don't spend as much on delivering that service. Enabling consumers to get care in convenient, cost-effective ways, not having to go to a big hospital, being able to go to a local center. And then a more importantly than all, I believe, improving decision-making by consumers and providers on how that health care is in place. I mean, a quick example is how engaging it can be for patients. An old gentleman diagnosed with heart failure at the age of 88, 
after a home health nurse counselled him on the dangers of assault and went to call 911, he actually, although he was already feeling isolated and scared, became even more convinced that any misstep on his part could result in death. Oh, geez. So, yeah. connecting to his care team, <laughs> enabled by remote monitoring devices, became his lifeline. So he learned to use a pulse oximeter and a blood pressure cuff to monitor his condition, transmitting those findings directly through a phone line to his nurse. He could then video conference with her to build up a strong bond, and she could help him to understand the readings that he was seeing, that they were in normal limits, that he wasn't going to die. And we see this all of the time. We see the way that remote devices can help patients to survive. There are the doctor surgeons now that use robots to do major surgery. All of these technology things are driving, but are all being driven by data. They're all being driven by data engines. I mean, recommendation engines are another thing that healthcare are really into. Clinical recommendation engines using electronical records. Um, University of Michigan Medical School has harnessed an intensive care signal program integrated with their ICU patient charts and they now mine the data and create tools that combine bedside real-time facts with clinical rules to signal potential dangers within the ICU before the ICU alarm goes off and that solution flag basically provides a risk and recommendation engine for diagnostic and treatment options for critically ill patients. This is its own institution, it's its own school and they're basically they're providing the technology, the disruptive ability of analysis to their own teaching hospital to help their own critical patient. Cancer patients, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center has built a longitudinal repository of individuals with cancer and greater fidelity. And basically it's combining public available centers for Medicare and Medicaid services data with administrative facts such as diagnosis and procedure code with clinical facts such as what cancer stage from the national program of cancer registries and that's again enhancing the meaning of administrative data allowing the center to compare one institution's results for similar cancer treatments to another and this is two sets of disparate data but providing a significant achievement in gaining insight about cancer treatment across the US. Peter, what you're describing, it sounds like such a huge transformation and you talked earlier about the fact that it's paranoia often that drives this. What has to go on inside of an organization to bring about transformation at this level? What sort of methodology supports this sort of transformation? In reality, enterprises have really been embracing business intelligence for a long time, but they're now getting around to also embracing big data analytics and they're trying to achieve a goal of making better decisions faster and while that goal remains important to a data-driven enterprise they also really need to try and uncover risks and opportunities that may not have been discoverable previously and that's either because they don't know what the question to ask was or they previously used technology that lacked that capability. So a data-driven enterprise as part of a methodology and practice has to consider where they are where they want to go to and how they want to get there. So to ensure progress, they have to establish KPIs to monitor the success of business operations, departments, projects, employees and initiatives. And quite often, these organizations really also need to establish one or more cross-functional committees of decision makers. And that's, in my opinion, is one of the really important facts because this is not just an IT problem anymore. This is a business problem. So the cross-functional committees have to have the ability 
to discuss openly what they're trying to create. They have to basically have the ability to understand the goals, the company practices, and also the technology implementations and limitations that they have, and that everything is coordinated. So a data-driven business really then tries to continuously improve how they're going to do things. So the ability of sort of building out this desire to explore data has to be reflected also in the high demand for the ability to do it by yourself because business users want to be able to dabble. They want to be able to ask the what-if question. They want to be able to build out a position that may be abnormal to a standard enterprise data warehouse position, but that's all about being data-driven. They all they have to be able to drive decisions from the data. It's really difficult to do at sometimes because they're trying to basically use that methodology to differentiate themselves by providing a customer with a better service, a quicker turnaround, and the other things that competition can't meet. But it's only after they manage to get their methodology and process in place that they can then start looking at how the infrastructure works as well. So when you start to look at infrastructure, I like to say this, forget everything that you've ever heard or read about enterprise architecture. We have a problem with IT is that they, in this data-driven enterprise, they hold back a lot of what we're trying to do because it doesn't have to take too long or cost too much. And there's not really a problem with the concept of enterprise architecture, but it's how it's been taught applied and executed. Enterprise architecture has been executed for a long time by IT groups for IT groups. So to understand that, you have to go back even further. I came into IT back in the 80s when the first enterprise data warehouses were brought online. And they were brought online because IT was given a mandate to protect the data because of the things that had happened previous to that where large companies had been sued. So IT built up a particular way of looking at data, a particular way of protecting data, and a particular way of storing data, which has continued for 25 plus years and still emanates on how IT want to deal with data even to this day. Now, the business has come in and wants to do digital transformation, and basically the two are clashing, and it's the, the successful companies in digital transformation are the companies that can take that and understand what that problem is and then basically have an idea that everything in the current state has to be drawn and modeled is not correct. The approach can cause wasted effort. It can take too long to show results. This is why the cloud providers are becoming very, very popular with business units because you can stand a cluster up on a credit card. You can throw data in it, you can analyze it, you can get the results and shut the cluster down. And IT doesn't know anything about it. So that's basically led to fragmentation of architecture, duplication and potential sub-optimization of processes, systems and information. So bringing back in the ability to do that process, a digital data-driven company going through a digitization process will actually provide a way to enable management to make those decisions. So having access to the right information in the right format at the right time. So you have to focus on a future state. You have to look at the desired business outcomes to help reduce that scope of current state analysis. And you have to be able to do all of that within a certain period of time. So reviewing your current architecture, your efforts, your tooling, question 
whether you're providing or managing data that the business does not need, whether you're working too deeply in areas that may not be adding value, or whether you have your vital architecture data spread across too many disconnected tools. The perfect example of this, by the way, is Amazon, because they basically, by disintermediating their retail harnessing and harnessing new technologies, such as big data and advanced analytics, they provided a way to, A, create new technologies that they needed, and then designed an infrastructure for maximum efficiency and refined the statement of doing more with less. Amazon did all of this at the same time while offering a superior customer experience. Its IT infrastructure and overall operations cost a fraction of major retailers while supporting a huge selection of products which no retailer can match and providing two-day delivery in most cases. And that is the perfect use case for a digitally driven and data-driven organization's architecture. Yeah, I think it's challenging for a lot of businesses to hear, all you need to do is go be like Amazon. But the basic process that you're outlining, it makes so much sense. And it's interesting that at this late date, here we are in the 21st century, and we're still hearing about this conflict between IT and the business, that that would still be going on. And it's interesting in the age of digital transformation, transformation where we might say, you know, you've really got to help the business get a hold of this idea that it's all about data and it's all about technology. You really have to get IT on board with that too, that, that the business is all about those things now, that that's not their sandbox anymore, that it, that, it, that it belongs to the whole organization. Yeah, I mean, it's actually quite interesting. If you look at the successful companies that are out there, the Airbnbs, the Ubers, there is a particular thread that runs through them all and that is that their head of organizational staff are of a certain generation they grew up with an ipad they didn't grow up with a database right. um, a lot of major organizations are still struggling because their organizations are led in some cases by th the people who have a very narrow focus of what their position should be as opposed to as we said right at the beginning having a view of the company not as a retail company but as a technology company so how do you use technology to achieve the aim of being a retail company instead of how do you use technology to support the aim of being a retail company and i think that's a huge play in this is how do you have that ability to do both okay well with just a few minutes left let's talk a little bit about how solix is making that possible how you are supporting implementing that kind of methodology putting that kind of infrastructure in place, helping organizations become really a true data-driven enterprise. Before we jump into that, I'd just like to give you one more quick example. Um, sure. Recently on Twitter, there was a, a well-known person was flying on a certain airline, and he was in first class, and he was flying across the U.S., and he made a, a comment about the standard of food. Before that plane landed, the company had picked up on that comment. They had changed the supplier of the food and they had basically enabled that passenger to taste the first of the new food before he landed at his new establishment. His oh, new my airport. gosh. Um, that's what you call a digitally transformed company. They're monitoring Twitter. They're monitoring Facebook. They're looking for changes that are wrong, and they're correcting them in the blink of an eye. So that's how I look at what a digitally transformed company can do. And in the so, process, turn something that could have been very bad for them from a PR correct. standpoint into something that yep. really probably benefited them tremendously. Precisely, because at the end of the, at the, end of the flight, he's tweeting out, oh, how, how well is this company, blah, 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 this is my favorite company, etc. Yeah, totally, totally turned about what could have been a really bad problem into a very good problem very quickly. Awesome. So Solix has really moved into this space in in a big way. We, we have something now called the Common Data Platform, 
And the Sonics Common Data Platform is really a highly scalable and robust next generation big data management application. It features the ability to do uniform data collection. It manages metadata. It imports metadata. It applies data governance, information lifecycle management, data security, and data discovery, which is all what IT is about, so IT are happy. And then it also has the ability to do everything that the data scientist and the data analyst wants to do, but all within one particularly well-controlled infrastructure. One of the problems that we hear from companies is that, oh, we can't implement Hadoop, it's not secure, or we can't implement Hadoop because it just becomes a data swamp. What the Solix Common Data Platform does is gives you the ability of having an enterprise data lake which is fully secured, has information lifecycle management, and can still be accessed by your users to enable you to become data-driven, run machine learning, and AI. So it stores data as is to eliminate costly ETL operations doing data ingest, provides the ability to transform data post-ingestion to feed unique needs of downstream NoSQL and analytical applications. It includes modern big data processing engines like Apache Spark, Impala, and Hive. And it also has machine learning libraries and advanced analytical capabilities to feed the need of today's real-time data-driven organizations. With this built-in enterprise data lake, along with enterprise archiving and application retirement, manipulated by eDiscovery, the Solix CDP provides organizations with an unparalleled enterprise data management and analytical tool and framework, which basically makes it possible for them to leverage data for effective diagnosis while saving on storage costs and complying with the complex regulatory compliance regulations that are actually coming out now, things like GDPR, uh, high-tech, etc. Right. We're certified with all of the major distributions, Cloudera, Hortonworks, and we can deploy it either in-premise, on the cloud, or basically in a hybrid environment. As I said, it's a self-contained enterprise data hub. And what this really does and really improves for the uh, organizations we've seen using it is the ability to look at data very quickly, work with that data, make that data available for analysis and insight, but still have all of the security around. So a lot of organizations struggle with, how do I get all of my data from all of these disparate systems into one place? The business says, oh, we'll just throw it in the enterprise data lake. And IT says, well, that becomes a, a data swamp. One of the things we drive through our platform is metadata ingestion. And that means that we're not talking about a swamp. We know where the data has come from. We know how it was created. We know how it's stored. We can interrogate it correctly. And we can have not a single version of truth, but we can have that confidence that the data is still correct when we're looking at it. That sounds like a very complete solution, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to talk with us today. No problem at all. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and glad to be of service. Well, it was just a very comprehensive kind of coverage of our topic for today. You know, we were looking at what's behind the hype. What does it really mean when you talk about digital transformation? And Peter, I feel like you gave us a great outline for that. And perhaps for some of those listening, a little bit of hope for how they can start making those steps themselves. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Fast Forward on the World Transformed. My thanks to Ron Powell and to Stephen Gordon. And our special thanks once again to Peter Evans for being with us today. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us as we continue to explore a future that is unfolding before us in unexpected ways and at a breathtaking pace. 
Until next time, live to see it. To learn more about the Solix Commons data platform, go to solix.com. To learn more about this program, visit worldtransformed.com. Thanks for listening.